0: Good morning, everybody. Glad that you're here with us during this video worship. It's time for us to get our Bibles out. We're going to study the Word of God. The first three centuries of the church, as you know, were hard years. They were years of great growth, but they were hard years nonetheless. One of the reasons for that was the persecution, the persecution of the church. We know the famous statement by Tertullian, one of the church fathers of the second century, who was made famous for saying, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. What he was saying is that this deadly and dangerous persecution that was breaking out against the church would not put an end to it, but in reality would cause it to grow and to grow and to grow. And this is what history has told us and shown us, that the church actually did grow and grow and grow. A less studied uh, area of the growth of the church during this period of time was uh, the, the influence of epidemics. In 165 AD, during the time of Marcus Aurelius, there was... This gigantic, horrific epidemic that spread throughout the entire empire lasted about 15 years or so. Uh, It was responsible for maybe about a quarter to a third of the deaths in the empire, including Marcus Aurelius in 180 A.D. in Vienna. Uh, A lot of scholars believe that this was probably the first instance of smallpox that showed itself in the world, at least in the Western world. And then some decades after that in 251 AD there was another equally devastating plague that swept through the empire perhaps this time it was not smallpox but it was the measles. Now the irony about all of this persecutions and epidemics the irony is that it was during the persecutions and the epidemics that Christianity actually became global. Now the part about the persecutions has been talked about and studied and written about a lot. But there's an interesting connection about the growth in the epidemics. A scholar by the name of Rodney Stark, just down I-35 from us at Baylor University, makes an interesting connection between how the Christians responded to these horrific epidemics and how it contributed to nearly the entire world becoming Christian by the end of the third century. In his book, The Rise of Christianity, he writes, and I quote, Frequently in human history, crises produced by natural or social disasters have been translated into crises of faith. Typically, this occurs because the disaster places demands upon the prevailing religion that it appears unable to meet. This inability can occur at two levels. First, the religion may fail to provide a satisfactory explanation of why the disaster occurred. Second, the religion may seem to be unavailing against the disaster, which becomes truly critical when all non-religious means also prove inadequate when the supernatural remains the only plausible source of help. End of quote. What Dr. Stark is saying is that a crisis of faith developed in the prevailing pagan religions of the ancient world during this time because of their inability to give meaningful answers to the question why, or to give direction to a way of life during the crisis that was equally meaningful. Now on the other hand, when it comes to the Christian faith, the Christian faith grew in those times of crises because of the answers it provided and the kind of people that it produced. The great irony is that the kingdom of God went global while so many other kingdoms tried to extinguish it. And there's a lesson in this, I think, for us today. And that lesson is this, that God can take our worst moments and turn them into our greatest ministry. Let me say that again. God can take our worst moments and turn them into our greatest ministry. So today, as we approach the ending of the pandemic, and really who knows when that's going to be, but we're closer now than we were four to six weeks ago, So as we approach the ending of the pandemic, we have a couple of questions to consider. The first is this. Will we have an answer to the why questions that will arise in the midst and the aftermath of the crisis? We we need to be able to answer questions like this. Why did this happen? Where is God? Who is in control? What uh, really matters and what doesn't really matter in life after this? Where is the ultimate security in life to be found? That's That's all part of that first question, the the why questions. The second one is this. Will our faith-based lifestyle, meaning disciples of Jesus, people who pick up their cross and follow Jesus daily, will a faith-based lifestyle make the situation better? Does being a disciple of Jesus make a difference in the world? To use Rodney Stark's word, does Christianity availeth much during a pandemic like this? Now, what I want to do over the next couple of weeks is to prepare us to answer both of those questions. This morning, we're actually going to start with the second one, leave the first one to uh, some some weeks down the road, perhaps. But we want to start with the second one. Will the kind of people the Christian faith produces make a difference in the world? And this brings us to the psalm that Jordan read just a, a few minutes ago. Psalm 131 is near to me. It's dear to me. It's one of two psalms I quote every morning. Uh, It's actually part of a larger collection of psalms in the Old Testament known as the Songs of Ascent. These were the songs that the pilgrims on their way to Jerusalem, which was set built up on a mountain, and they were always ascending up to it. They're called the Songs of Ascent because they would sing them as they ascended up the mountain to Jerusalem for the three great festivals each year. And we're going to look at this psalm. It's only three verses, but we're going to look at it in two parts. And we begin with a declaration. David is speaking to God. He says, Yahweh. He is speaking to God personally, and he says, verse 1, My heart is not proud, Yahweh. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. You know, in the Garden of Eden, where sin is first introduced into the world, the first humans were given one rule. That was not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And yet there was something in the desire to become like God that involved possessing a knowledge that was to be possessed by God and God alone. The first sin really involved um, uh, concern for great matters, for things too wonderful for me. It involved not trusting God to know what is best for humans and turning to self, the human self, to determine that. And this is the root of the problem of pride. I don't need God. Everything that I have is contained between these two hands and between these two ears. I can make my own way. And here's a definition I want us to think about as we think about this declaration of humility in the face of pride that David is making to God. Here's the definition. Pride is the sin of demanding to live life on creature terms and not creator terms. Pride is the sin of demanding to live life on creature terms and not creator terms. The problem of human pride is described all over the Bible. One of the most famous ones, Proverbs chapter 16, verse 18, pride goes before the destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. But here's the thing. Pride is an awfully hard thing to discern in our lives when the culture we live in holds it up as a virtue. Now, achievement and ambition in and of themselves are not immoral. Achievement and ambition actually... uh, can be used in some very critically good ways in the world by God. But when achievement and ambition blind us to the greater reality, which is we are creatures in the Creator's world, then they become a terrible, terrible liability. And David is saying to God that his life only makes sense with God and never without God. And in so doing, making this declaration, That my, my heart is not proud. My eyes are not haughty. I'm not concerning myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. What David is doing is reducing the distance between his heart and God's. David, in essence, is declaring that I live in your presence. It is by your power that I live. I live in the midst of your power. I live in your wisdom. I live in your greatness. And I trust you to understand the very things that I can not understand or don't need to understand. I trust you to know what is beyond me to know. I trust you to be in control when life gets uncontrollable. So what does a person look like who declares to God, I know you and I trust you? That person looks like a beautiful contradiction to everything else going on around them and it's here that david goes from the declaration to an image of satisfaction of satisfaction david gives us a really poignant image of what a human of what human satisfaction looks like disciples of jesus should have this look wherever they go of being people who are satisfied in the world and here's the image it's verse 2 of psalm 131 But I have calmed and quieted myself. I am like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child, I am content. A week or so before our social distancing guidelines were put into place, my granddaughter Blair was with Ellen and me at the house spending the day with us. We were watching in the afternoon, the early part of the afternoon, you know, big shock. We were watching the Disney movie Frozen. I was sitting on the floor with my back against the couch. And Blair was, uh, you know, she had the run of the house. She could sit anywhere. She could have any seat in the house she wanted. Uh, The big chairs, the big ottomans, the big sofa, but where she wanted to be and where she was most content to watch that movie was on my lap. And she was trusting and comfortable and secure and happy and satisfied on my lap. And that is the image that David is using, that David is describing, that That's him in God's presence in Psalm 131. A nursing child wants the mom for what the mom provides. And there's nothing immoral in that at all. But David chooses the picture of an older child, a weaned child with its mother. Why? A weaned child has a different relationship with mother. The weaned child wants the mother for the sake of the mother. It's a picture of a tender-hearted little kiddo who just wants to be with his mom and finds satisfaction and, and comfort and security on mom's lap. And David says, that's what it looks like with God and me. And notice the three words that he uses to describe the experience of being with God. He is calm, he is quieted, and he is content. You know, Paul writes the same thing to the church in Philippi. In Philippians chapter 4, he writes, the Lord is near. He begins with proximity there. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. What David is doing in Psalm 131, is giving us a picture of what it looks like to live in this sometimes unpredictable, sometimes deadly world with God. And the psalm ends with these words, O Israel, put your hope in the Lord both now and forevermore. What David is writing and what David is praying and what David is singing is that what is true for me will be true for the community of God's people everywhere for all time. Think of it this way, there may be much we don't know in this world, but one thing we do know is God. You know, this is what those early disciples looked like in the middle of the persecution, in the middle of the martyrdoms, in the middle of those epidemics. They believed that God dwelled in the presence of his people. They believed that God had given them a mission to reflect him back into creation. And they believed that the cross of Jesus had given them a way to live at all times, a self-sacrificing love in this world, in this creation. And they believed that the resurrection had given them the answer to the really big life questions. And the result? They were calm and quieted in their souls. They were non-anxious presences in the midst of crisis. They had this undeniable poise in the middle of their own epidemic. And they were content, which made them unbelievably generous with everything that they had. They were kind to those who had only known the meanness of the world and the hardness of the world. And they were caring, even for those outside of their their closest relational networks, they were caring and they were merciful and they were gentle. And when everyone else was fleeing the cities and abandoning the ill, It was the disciples of Jesus who went straight into the center of the storm and worked to make things better for the suffering and for the frightened and for the dying. It was the way that they lived in the world, and it was that way in the world that caught the eye of everyone around them. I want to end with an observation by Rodney Stark, who I quoted at the beginning of the sermon as he reflects back on all of the things that happened during these epidemics and the ways that the Christians, the disciples of Jesus, responded to it, he makes this observation. To cities filled with newcomers and strangers, Christianity offered an immediate basis for attachments. To cities filled with orphans and widows, Christianity provided a new and expanded sense of family. To cities torn by violent ethnic strife, Christianity offered a new basis for social solidarity, and to cities faced with epidemics and fires and earthquakes, Christianity offered an effective nursing service. What they brought was not simply an urban movement, but a new culture capable of making life in Greco-Roman cities more tolerable. That new culture is a movement of people who have picked up their crosses and are following Jesus in living lives of self-sacrificing love in the best of times and especially in the worst of times. You may have noticed that we've moved the sermon to the beginning of our worship video today that was done with intent. I moved the Lord's Supper to after the sermon this morning because I wanted us to conclude our worship this morning thinking about the cross and thinking about the resurrection of Jesus in all of its applications, and all of its implications and ramifications for our life. And what a difference partaking of the bread and partaking of the fruit of the vine and all that it represents in the cross and the resurrection of Jesus, the difference that it makes in our lives in the way that we live. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for this life. And we're especially grateful for your presence right in the middle of it. Remind us each day that you live in our presence and that we live in yours. And that, Father, through what you have accomplished in the cross and the resurrection of Jesus has completely changed not just this time in our own history, but you have completely changed the history of the cosmos, of the universe. And our lives will never be the same. And so we pray, Father, that as we find satisfaction in your presence, that you will open doors before us to live those kinds of lives and to perform the kind of ministry that that kind of life, the cross and the resurrection, produces, to live and to do that ministry in this world in such a way that people begin to see you and to glorify you and to honor you with their lives and to find that you are the answer to every question in their heart. Help us, Father, to be courageous and brave in doing that. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. May God grant you peace and strength and contentment and quietness of soul this day. Amen.